0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 21. Paul delivers a stark reality check for the people who claim to be the people of God by insisting that the people of faith do not have faith. Here in Romans, we're talking about Israel, the people of God, who base their pursuit of righteousness on their Old Testament Bible, and their traditional understanding of the Bible. Listen to that. The people of God Israel, who uphold biblical morality in the midst of a pagan culture, who insist on the worship of the only true God Yahweh, who pursue their religion with zeal, these people of God are excluded from the people of God. Is that true today? And I'm I'm not asking about Israel. I'm asking about the people who claim to be the people of God who claim allegiance to the Bible, who hold to a long tradition, who uphold biblical morality in a modern pagan world. If it was true that the Jews misunderstood faith in Paul's day, is it possible that Christians misunderstand faith in our day? This passage is a reality check. We need to pause and pay attention to make sure we understand what Paul's saying about Israel so that we can evaluate ourselves our churches, our movements, our denominations, by the same measure, it is possible for the people of God to be zealous for their way and yet miss the main thing. How can the people of faith, the people of God, not have faith? We're continuing with that question, which started in Romans 9.30 and goes on through the end of chapter 10. We got halfway through in our last lesson. We're able now to consider the larger argument. I'll set up the whole, and then we'll focus in on the part we did not get to yet. So at the end of chapter 9, we can paraphrase Paul's question like this. How can it be that Gentiles, who were not even trying, were let in and called the people of God, while the Jews, who were the most biblically moral and religious people around, were shut out? Paul's answer is quite simple. The Gentiles accepted by faith God's plan of salvation, while the Jews, the people in the know, rejected that plan of salvation, holding stubbornly to their own understanding of the Bible. They understood the Bible, requiring the pursuit of righteousness. That sinner's owner has its locus in Israel. They would say it's fine to let in Gentiles as long as they pursue righteousness in the Jewish way. Paul says they stumbled over the stumbling stone Jesus. Then in the beginning of chapter ten, Paul admits about the Jews that they have an impressive zeal. They're very religious. Sadly, that zeal is not based on knowledge, but on their own theological system. They've decided how it ought to be. And simple faith in Jesus is not at the center of that system. We're reminded here, as Paul speaks, that the Christian faith is a truth-based faith. The Jews do not get to define their own way. God's way exists. So the postmodern idea of my truth does not hold before God. It's not enough to sincerely run in the wrong direction. If you drink poison instead of medicine, it does not matter how sincerely you believe you are drinking medicine. Sin is a cancer and there's only one treatment that works. Jesus. If you reject that treatment and come up with your own treatment based on whatever combination of ritual or morality or theology or spirituality, your cure will be no cure at best you may succeed in mollifying or hiding some of the symptoms of sin but your way is not based on knowledge of spiritual reality there must be a payment of sin jesus there must be a victory over death jesus there must be reception of the gift of grace jesus there must be submission and trust to your savior and lord jesus god's plan of salvation is jesus no matter how sincerely or faithfully or successfully or painfully, you pursue another way of righteousness, that way will not cure the disease of sin and death. Paul says that they sought their own way, rejecting God's way. So what is God's way? It's in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the hypothesis. That's the central statement that Paul develops through the rest of chapter 10. In our last lesson, we interpreted the word end with its double meaning of a goal and of completion. At the end, we reach the goal. We're done. Imagine God's plan of salvation as a relay race. So Abraham and his descendants ran the first lap, and then he handed the baton over to Moses and the nation Israel. And in the Old Covenant, Israel ran the second lap, running the whole way towards Christ. And when they came to the exchange zone and passed the baton to Jesus in the church, The law came to an end. It completed its purpose to bring us to Christ, who is both the goal and the completion of the law. That lap is over. Now we should be running together, Jew and Gentile, as the body of Christ. I also argued that the best way to read the word for in that verse is as a logical connector, like you find the NIV translations. So verse 4 means this. Christ is the end of the law the fulfillment and completion of the Mosaic Covenant, so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. For those who believed before Jesus, those who believe after Jesus, for those who are Jews, and those who are Gentiles. Jesus makes righteousness possible. It is the righteousness that comes by faith, and it is available to all. Now in verses 5 to 21, Paul develops this statement about Jesus that Jesus is the fulfillment and true source of righteousness for all who believe. First, Paul looks back to what the law of Moses says, and then he brings us forward to the time of Christ. And by way of introduction in verse 5, Paul points out from the law of Moses that righteousness based on law is accomplished by actually doing the law. And this was his argument back in chapter 2. If you choose the way of law, if you pursue a righteousness of law, You must succeed in doing the law to live. But he argued before that no one succeeds in doing the law. So is that all Moses has for us? A call to do the law that we cannot fulfill? No. And now we get into the main development of Paul's case for faith. The law says that you must do. Faith says that you must receive. Of Paul's six points about faith in this chapter, we addressed two in the last lesson. Now we're really ready to go. The people of faith have missed faith. What does it look like to get faith? Or what does the kind of faith God approves of look like? So we have six points two from the last lesson, four for this lesson. Then we're going to end the chapter with a couple of objections. You're familiar with these points, so we can keep it moving. The first point comes in verses six and seven faith requires believing in the revelation. God has given. Paul took this point from Moses in Deuteronomy. Don't go up into heaven to get it or down below. The word's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. The first point from Moses, that if you pursue righteousness based on law, you must do the law, is not the last word from Moses. Moses also taught the requirement of faith. So God kept something secret. He gave Israel what she needed to know. Faith requires trusting in the revelation that God has given. The Jews had to trust God's grace that they would be forgiven of their sins as they trusted him and performed the symbolic acts of sacrifice. God took away their sin as a result of their faith. They had that word in their mouth and in their heart. Now the next point came in verses 8 through 11. The word of faith given that must now be believed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul brought the word of faith up to date in accordance with the new revelation we have from Jesus. The word in Egypt had been cover the door with the blood of the lamb and the angel of wrath will pass over you. How's that work? How does the blood of the lamb take away our guilt and the wrath we deserve? That's not for you to know. Not until the coming of Jesus. Not until now. Now the secret things are revealed. Jesus is the true lamb. His blood takes away the sin as he died in our place. This is the word that Paul says we must now believe. This is the new word in our mouth and in our heart. And as that baton is passed from Moses to Christ, we ought to have a positive aha moment. Aha, that's what it all means. That's how it works. I see now. Faith in the salvation plan of God seamlessly transitions from old to new as Jesus fulfills what was pointed to and what was left lacking in the old. So now the believer who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord is the one who will be saved. Okay, those two points were in our previous lesson. Faith requires believing in the revelation God has given. The word of faith given that must now be believed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we move on to Paul's third point about faith in ten, twelve to 13. Faith makes salvation open to all without distinction. Let's read the verses. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This principle gets us back to the Jewish problem with the Gentiles. How can they who have not tried be let in? It brings to mind Jesus' story about the landowner who hired workers throughout the day and he paid them all at the end of the day the same wage. Now that's not fair. The ones worked from the beginning. Get the same as these latecomers. It also brings to mind Jesus' story of the king sending servants out to the lanes and ditches to bring into the wedding feast anyone who will come, so long as they dress themselves in the wedding clothes the king provides. It also brings to mind the wicked thieving man who trusted Jesus as the last breaths were forced from his crucified body and was promised by Jesus paradise. Fair or unfair, faith levels out the whole playing field. Everyone at any time can come in. Everyone. The gospel is exclusive. It's exclusive in this way only through Jesus. Jesus is the only way. But the gospel is also inclusive. Education does not matter. Wealth does not matter. Gender does not matter. Ethnicity does not matter previous lifestyle does not matter. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. The gospel is offered to all who will come and trust in Jesus. That's the word of faith. And this leads us to our fourth point. Faith requires proclamation. So let's read 10, 14 to 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The universal welcome of the gospel to every person on earth who will believe compels the mission of the church. If we have a cure for the disease of sin and death, how can we not make it our central mission? to proclaim that good news to every man, every woman, every child who suffers from the disease. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, 18-20 was not a last-minute add-on. It was not a, oh, by the way. It was the commission to the church, the mission of the church on earth. As Jesus communicated that mission, it came down to one central imperative. Make disciples of all nations. The imperative is not to grow your church or your denomination. It's not to spread your traditions and your distinctives. The imperative is to invite people from every ethnic group without distinction to come to Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to follow Jesus. That's the beautiful good news. And for Paul, the logic of missions and evangelism is integral to the message of faith. If Jesus has died for everybody and made it possible for everybody to enter into the family, shouldn't we go tell everybody? You see, a lot of people do not call on Jesus for salvation. They do not call on Jesus because they do not believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. But a lot of people do not believe Jesus is Lord and Savior because they have not heard about Jesus. And a lot of people have not heard about Jesus because no one has explained Jesus to them. And it's possible that no one has explained Jesus to them because no one was sent. The good news compels proclamation. There's a challenge here. Paul has obviously taken his own message to heart, dedicating his life to proclaiming the gospel. He's going to say later in Romans 15, 20, I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named. He wants the people who haven't heard to hear. He owned the mission of taking the gospel to those who have not heard. Because how can people believe if they have not heard, and how can they hear if someone is not sent to proclaim? God has given the mission of proclamation to the church. The implication and challenge here is that if the people of God do not respond, then the world will not believe. The proclamation is linked to the hearing which is necessary for faith. Now, God can make the rocks cry out, that's true, but that's not his plan, and it's certainly not a justification for neglecting the gospel imperative to proclaim. God has given his people this great and solemn responsibility to make sure that everyone hears. This is our mess and our crisis. God gave humanity the commission to rule over this world. We humans are responsible. God challenges and calls us and invites us to participate in the rescue mission, in the cleanup, and in the rebuilding. The body of Christ is responsible to proclaim. This proclamation must come by words. It should be supported by a lifestyle of growth in Christ. Word and behavior need to be an integrated message We should not have word without behavior, but then we can't have behavior without word. People need to hear, and that's our responsibility. Now, even with all that said, we also recognize that proclamation is not a guarantee of salvation. And that's point five. Faith is not understanding the good news, but receiving the good news. Let's read verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed Our report. They heard, but did not heed. They understood, but did not receive. They listened, but did not obey. Faith requires a personal act of will by which an individual yields to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And in Paul's day, the Celts of England might be able to argue, how could we have believed? We did not hear and no one was sent. Paul's focus is not on Gentile peoples in this passage. He's not talking about the Celts. His focus is on Israel. The people of faith did not miss faith because they had not heard of Jesus Christ, they missed faith because they did not heed. Hearing's not enough. Hearing must be followed by receiving by an act of true faith. As we should expect by now, Paul's choice of Old Testament reference here is not simply a choice of nice phrases that fit into his argument. Paul draws from Isaiah not just to express his argument but also to support and deepen his argument. He quoted from Isaiah fifty two seven in verse fifteen. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring great tidings of good things. Then in verse 16, he quotes the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed our message? And the immediate expression works in Romans. You know, we don't have to go back to Isaiah and we get Paul's point. Blessed is the person who announces the gospel of Jesus, but not everyone will believe that message. So it makes sense without us turning back to Isaiah. But then we get even more when we do go back. the original context of Isaiah. The quote about beautiful feet comes from Isaiah 52, and that's a chapter of joyful announcement of salvation for Israel from captivity in Babylon. God will bring the people back to Jerusalem. Blessed are the feet of the man who brings that news. We're delivered. We're going home. That's good news. Those are some beautiful feet. That good news is followed immediately by the famous Isaiah 53 chapter, Of the suffering servant, who will be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, a lamb led to the slaughter. Physical salvation from Babylon is not enough. God can't bring his people back without addressing the curse of sin and death. He would only be reforming a wicked people, bringing them home to die in their sin. So as Alec Moyer puts it, the great deliverance must be followed by the greater deliverance. That greater deliverance is described as the death of the servant in Isaiah 53. This is what must happen. This is the prophecy about which Paul quotes, who has believed our message. Israel was ready to receive good news of salvation, whether in earlier days from Babylon or present days from Rome. They were ready for deliverance for whoever was oppressing them. They were ready to receive a political savior, a miracle worker, a king who provides bread. They were not ready to receive a crucified Messiah, pierced and crushed like a lamb to the slaughter. And they were not ready for a savior who opens the door to every person without making them pass through Israel as the gatekeeper. They heard the gospel of faith in Jesus. They were not ready to heed it. Point six is a summation to this point, focusing on the idea of hearing. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. That's verse 17. The word of Christ is God's plan of salvation. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Paul simply makes the statement, I think we could read a lot into this one verse, we could recognize the previous points, that hearing happens when people go out and proclaim, and that hearing is not enough, but must be followed up with faith. We could also recognize things that Paul has not said in this passage, and that faith is not a purely human act, but a work of God in the heart, and that the word is living and active, so much so that God uses the proclamation of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring people to true faith. That's why the proclamation of the gospel sometimes brings an immediate response. Paul does not say those things here. The point here is a a simple point aimed at Israel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The people of Israel have been called to trust in God's plan of salvation. That plan has been made known. Nothing else is required. Nothing else is needed. There are no hidden secrets, special handshakes ritual requirements. There is the proclamation of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, and the believing in the gospel. That hard, that easy. Paul ends the section bringing clarity to his argument with a couple of objections, and we're used to this in Romans. Paul likes to object to himself and then answer his own objections. The first objection and response is in chapter 10, verse 18. It says this, I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul raises the objection that they've not heard. And then he answers the objection by quoting Psalm 19. And that psalm declares that God revealed himself in the creation. It's similar to Paul's claim back in chapter 1 when he said his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. But we've got two problems here. First, who is the objection about? Who are we claiming has not heard? And second, Paul's been talking about the specific revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the general revelation of God as creator. So what does Psalm 19 prove in this regard? So I'm going to take a step back to Paul's larger argument. The big picture argument is that even though the majority of Israelites have been excluded from the new covenant people of God, God's word has not failed. And here in chapter 10, the reason Israelites are excluded is that they have rejected the way of faith and pursued their own way of righteousness. Paul has said that Israel is responsible in hearing the message of Jesus to receive with faith that message as God's plan of salvation. The objection here in verse 18 is stated generally, perhaps claiming all peoples have not heard, but our context is more specifically about Israel. How can the Israelites be responsible to believe the message about Jesus if they have not heard that message? But they have heard. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and the words to the end of the world. The question here is whether Paul is suggesting that the psalm somehow argues that Israel has heard about Jesus. Was that included in the prophecy of the psalm? Or whether Paul is using the language of the psalm to make a point about the current state of affairs. I think he's using the language of the psalm. I do not think that the psalm makes the point for Paul. I think Paul's using familiar language of the psalm to make a new point that connects back to his comment about preachers being sent to preach the good news. So metaphorically, the sun is sent every day to shout that God reigns in the heavens above. That's general revelation. Paul's using that language to say that messengers of the gospel have been sent out into the world. And the point could be phrased this way. Just as knowledge of God is announced throughout the world by the physical creation, God has also sent human messengers throughout the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. If this is the intent, then I have to admit there certainly is some hyperbole or literary exaggeration. The gospel message has gone out through Paul and others into the known Roman world, but certainly not the whole known Roman world. I mean, Paul's own plan is to head further west to Roman territory of Spain. No one's gone there yet. But for the sake of the argument, the gospel has radiated out from Jerusalem to Gentile peoples who have responded in faith. And perhaps even more to the point, the gospel has gone out to the scattered Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire and in Persia and all around the Mediterranean Sea. It's gone out into the whole world. And if our main argument is about Israel and we're asking whether or not the Israelites have heard, the answer is yes. The word has gone from Jerusalem outwards. The problem of the Jews in the homeland and outside the homeland is not that they have not heard. This brings us to the second objection in verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And Paul's response is essentially this, knowledge is not the problem. Moses and Isaiah foretold what would happen. God planned to invite the Gentiles in. Israel would be jealous and the Israelites would stubbornly refuse to accept God's plan. Here's how Paul says it in verse 19a through 21. First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me, I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands, to a disobedient and obstinate people. The problem for Israel is not a lack of hearing and not a lack of understanding. The problem is in the heart. The problem is a refusal to accept the way things have turned out. They do not want the Messiah to be a crucified Messiah. They do not want Gentiles invited in without coming through Israel. And they do not want a righteousness that you do not have to work to obtain. The image of stubborn disobedience takes us back to Paul's original thesis in Romans to 17 which includes the statement from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. You remember way back in lesson three, Habakkuk rejecting God's plan of salvation at that time for Israel, a plan of cleansing wrath through Babylon with only a remnant being saved. Habakkuk took his stand on the wall, planting both feet firmly, challenging God and God's plan. In the end, Habakkuk's heart changed. He saw the coming army as God's justice and eventual deliverance. Finishing his prophecy, Habakkuk wrote these words of faith. I must wait quietly for the day of distress. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on high places. That's a heart of faith. The challenge was voiced anew in the day of Jesus. This is the way of salvation. Will you accept Jesus Christ as the end of the law and the answer to your cry for deliverance? Israel ascended as a people onto the wall, firmly planted their feet in opposition to God's plan, and still obstinately waits for God to change his mind. That ends the chapter, but let's let's conclude with our own reality check. First, our six points. The principle of faith says you must receive. And point one, faith requires believing in the revelation God has given. Point two, the word of faith given that must now be believed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Point three, faith makes salvation open to all without distinction. Point four, faith requires proclamation. Point five, faith is not understanding the good news, but receiving the good news. And point six, in summation, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Now here's a simple but important observation. Faith is not something expressed by a group. If we say a group has believed, what we mean is that many individuals have expressed personal faith in Jesus Christ. These individuals were either already part of some group, like the Samaritan village that responded to the woman's testimony and came to Jesus, or these individuals were separate but because of their common faith joined together as a group, like a local church. The group does not have faith. The group is made up of individuals who must have faith. I also want to make a correction from my lesson on chapter 9. Chapter 9 speaks about both corporate groups and individuals. And looking back over my notes, I see that I said the vessels of wrath are groups, Israel and Gentiles. There's a sense where that may be true. That was true in Jeremiah's Potter analogy about Israel as a people. But in 924, Paul says that we are the vessels of mercy. He's talking about individuals. Each individual who has received by faith the gospel of Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, is a vessel of mercy. When we talk about corporate Israel or the corporate body of Christ, we're talking about groups of individuals. And we can speak of the groups we belong to of our denomination or of our movement or our local church fellowship. And as we speak of our group or our community, we also recognize that at the most basic level, faith is intensely personal and individual. So my reality check starts with me. I must first ask myself, have I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ like Paul teaches it here? And then I must ask myself, have I received by faith this gospel, this good news? Have I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord? Has hearing the word become faith in my heart? Is Jesus my one and only hope, my one and true Lord? Having asked this question of myself, we now ask it of our group. Have our brothers and sisters in Christ understood this gospel message? Does everyone know that righteousness is by grace? Have we each heard? Have we each been challenged to receive that message personally and individually? And having asked this question of ourselves and of our group, we then ask, who else needs to hear? With whom can we share the good news? Who can we tell? And who can we send? If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.